Hi, folks! Are you enjoying the art of comics so far? Yeah? Truly? That's fantastic. I'm just sliding in here before the episode to ask you one giant favor. Now, this is not where we plug a Patreon or start running ads for socks and mattresses. We only ask that you please leave us a good rating if you happen to like what we do, and maybe even share it with a loved one. And as per usual, we dive headfirst into the story of Step by Bloody Step, meaning we'll spoil several plot elements. So should you decide reading this without any insight or giveaways, pause here, pick up the comic, and come back later. Alrighty, enough of me stalling for time. Let's get on with it. My name is Joss, I'm an artist, streamer, and since I'm currently re-watching the old Pokemon, I'm also trying to become a Pokemon master. Gotta be the very best. Gotta be the very best. I try to like do one of those stupid, and I wanna be the best podcaster out there, gotta read all the comments. I was like, this is so forced, I'm just gonna fuck this shit. <laughs> Hi, I'm Paul Duffield. Very undercaffeinated. That'll do. <laughs> <laughs> doing my best. Wink! Doing, yes, doing my best. Okay. Barely. Since you're low energy, do you want me to, to actually do the this week where blah 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 blah? I'll give it a go. Any listeners from last episode will remember that I completely failed to be able to even say the title to this book, so I can only go upwards. Let's give it a try. This week we will be discussing Step by Bloody Step by Cy Spuria, Matthias Bagara, and Mateus Lopez. I got it right first time. I am so proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's not that hard. I don't know why I was failing so badly. Oh, I mean, in our defense, we had been going for one and a half hour. So now comes the follow up uh, challenge, Joe. Do you have a blurb? I do. <gasps> have you written one? Yes, I have. Okay, right. I'll, I'll give mine a try. A young girl is being taken on a journey by a warrior in a hulking suit of armor that protects, guides, and restricts her. Step by bloody step takes us on that journey as the girl grows up and pushes at the boundaries of the fateful forces that keep her on her allotted path. A girl is born into a world of turmoil. Luckily, she is assigned a giant animated armor as her bodyguard. This overprotective piece of metal carries the girl across the world on a grand mission. Exactly what this mission entails isn't all that clear, but it's remarkably beautiful and tragic nonetheless. Actually, it's a good place to start with the, uh, the fact that the comic is completely wordless, which isn't the first, it's not the first time I've read a wordless comic. It is the first time I've read what I would describe as like a high fantasy comic that's also wordless. How about you? Is, he, is this, have you read many wordless comics before? No, from the top of my memory, I am tempted to say that this is my first true wordless comic, but I feel like I have to correct though, because it isn't entirely wordless. Not only does it have a made up language at certain points of the comic, but also it has the written text every now and then between what feels like chapter divides. And that leads me straight to one of my first notes, because I wanted to ask you, what do you, what do you think about the chapter divides with the written text? Oh, okay. I was going to ask you the same question. I think the f I wasn't expecting them to be frequent or, or as frequent as they are. They sort of divide the book into four distinct slots and each of them is themed to a season. And there's a twist at the end of this book, which I'm just going to, you know, as always, we discuss spoilers and this is the biggest spoiler for the book, which is the whole nature of the story is cyclical and the person in the armor protecting the child is actually a previous incarnation of the same character. 
who has grown into the armor and protected a version of themselves that has been born. And then the seasonal. So I guessed this ahead of time. And I think it might be partly to do with the fact that the text at the beginning set up the seasons as a really pivotal point. And there's something about seasons and cyclical stories and all that kind of stuff that then led, led me to just think, oh, it's going to be her, her in the armour, isn't it? That was sort of my first kind of guess about the nature of things going on. Did, did you get a similar thing? I have to be honest and say that the because this is my second read, because so far I have read all of the ones that we read uh, in the show so far, I've read them at least once, and I'm really looking forward to to us finally diving into some unknown territory in the future where I don't come with a preset bias. But I think I could say that when I first read this uh, last year, that I did not pick up on that because I was honestly a little surprised to see who was in the armor because I th- this you know speaks volumes of what we expect out of bigger characters but I thought it would be a man not a woman mm. and yeah I have to be honest since I since I asked you about the the text and you wanted to ask me I don't much care for it because I don't think it adds anything to the story I think it flows wonderfully without it it feels expositiony and it feels <laughs> I feel a little mean for saying this, but it feels a little pretentious to me. It's written in a way where, and this might be a me thing, I'm fully aware that this might strictly be the fact that English is my first language or that these kind of texts just don't grab me the same, but I didn't really even remember the text by the end of this comic. Yeah, full disclosure for this one. I know Siberia, the writer, quite well. Mm -hmm. Um, He's a friend and part of a a broader friendship group that I'm part of. And for context, just to get a little bit of character of the man, he was a best man at a wedding that I was at. Oh. And the speech that he wrote, it was incredible, but it says a lot about Sai. It was written in Old English, Shakespearean English and Modern English in three distinct sections. And it was just such an entertaining piece. But he's someone who really loves language and loves the sort of the sound of language. And that's normally very evident in his comics. But this is a very odd fit for him because it's completely wordless. And at the same time, you can tell that he wanted that little opportunity to set the tone with language as well. Yeah. And uh, (laughs) I guess that highlights something very telling about me. I have always had a gripe with old English and stuff like that. It's just never resonated with me. And that is a highly subjective taste. And of course, it's, you know, it's unrelatable to this comic because it's not Old English, but just like in reference to the wedding speech you mentioned, which I'm sure it's super fun for the people who got wed and everyone present. But again, I think it is an ESL kind of thing or maybe just a me being a ding dong kind of thing, but it just never really resonated with me. So when the text in this comic was there, what my takeaway was, was that the author doesn't necessarily trust the artist enough to translate that little bit of text into the art, which I personally think the artist did wonderfully. And I, I don't necessarily think that is the takeaway, you know? I, I think that is just me reading into the fact that it's there in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Did you... I don't know if you've got the same edition that I've got, but did you notice the script to final page comparisons in the back? Yes, I, I, I honestly don't know what other versions there is. Mine is a soft cover with the entire comic, and then in the back there's cover variations, and then in the very back it's the script versus the, the sketched pages. 
Yeah, it's the same one as me. I, again, I'm not sure whether there are multiple editions yet or not. Yeah, I honestly haven't looked it, into it. But the script itself is wonderful. Like, I even uh, I even read bits of it for my partner earlier that it's so funny to see how universal a well-written comic script is. It's just, like, it's very to the point. It's bullet pointy. It's very much about conveying the the exact thing you want to be portrayed on the panel. And it's such a jarring contrast, or jarring isn't the word, but it's such a big contrast to the written text between the chapters. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know what you mean. This isn't the first time I've seen one of Sai's scripts. I worked on a, I uh, did some coloring for a short that's in the Attack on Titan anthology book for a short that was written by Sai, drawn by Kate Brown and colored by me. So I saw his script for that and it was fantastic. And that's cool the confidence with which he sort of gets straight to the heart of what the panel means i think is is fantastic in in the script yeah so that the quality of the script made me reflect on the fact that as a wordless comic it's extremely ambitious it asks you to internalize some really complex concepts like specifically towards the end when the character rewinds time to go back to an extremely pivotal moment in the plot. And for that to, to occur completely wordlessly, I thought was was pretty stunning. I didn't always follow the plot perfectly all the way along, but normally it just took a quick glance backwards to a couple of panels to see if I'd missed a detail or something. I thought that aspect of of the just the, just the pure kind of competency of the storytelling was here was uh, was really good. Did you did you respond to it the same way? I agree. And I did find myself also going back and forth several times to get a feeling for the consistency. And I even wrote down that comics are a blend of text and the visual image. It made me wonder if the fact that there are no, there's no sound effects in this, there's no speech bubbles in this whatsoever, like outside from the few that I mentioned where there's a fictional language in the story that we as the reader don't understand. It made me reflect on the fact that would I have felt just as lost in any other comic if there were no text and no sound effects to guide me, as I did a couple of times in this. Not to say that it happened a lot, but there were times where I went back and forth just because since there is no text to guide your eye or there is no sound effect to put an extra oomph on the actions, I could find myself a little lost in it because some of the pages are quite panel heavy, which I do think is incredibly beautiful, but it can also be a little busy. And yeah, it, it made me wonder if I'm just so spoiled by always having text to guide me and to guide the narration. And here you kind of have to actively put in more of an effort yourself as the reader. Yeah, I'd agree. And I said there are definitely, so the art is stunning like i think it's beautiful mm -hmm. and it usually does a very good job of guiding your eye to where you need to be but it's also very very fine i was sort of thinking perhaps it's been shrunk down from much much larger pages because the, the the artwork like the line work is so thin mm -hmm. and the kind of the level of density and detail in almost every single page and panel with the exception of a couple that have been really spared down in a really lovely way means that sometimes you do get lost in the detail. There are a couple of specific spreads I was thinking of where they've deliberately just shown the footsteps of the characters. And in each of those cases, I stopped dead and spent quite a long time looking for the characters, almost like a Where's Wally or something, just to make sure I wasn't missing them. <laughs> I understand exactly what you mean. And that, that kind of, you know, that, that density of the artwork is, um, it, you know, it, it makes it absolutely breathtaking, but then it also occasionally just works a little bit against the clarity of the storytelling. Yeah, because this 
this do bring me to another point that I wrote down. And again, I can't stress enough how subjective some of these points are. But I personally really missed some... I honestly don't know the official term for this. I just called them movement guides. So they're especially common in superhero comics, but also manga, where you have lines to show direction of movement. So let's say you're swinging an arm, there will be curved arches drawn with lines to demonstrate in which direction and in what speed and uh, that arm is moving. And there's basically none of that in this comic, which made me feel that a lot of the imagery could feel a little static. And it also brought to mind the the conversation we had a couple of episodes ago where you said that you want art to be visual enough to not need sound effects. And then we had the whole conversation about how I still love sound effects because I do believe they're part of the artwork if they're done well. There are pieces here where I can definitely hear the sound, but there's also pieces here where I wish the exaggeration was bolder. There are some places where I wish the form of the characters were more smooshed and unclear to emphasize movement instead of very detailed out and beautiful. Yeah, is it in terms of the kind of the quality of the art? I was quite surprised to find that both of the artists were South American. I thought that it had an incredibly European feel to the quality of the artwork. I agree so much. I was like, this is either French or Italian, right? Right, yeah, that was absolutely my first thought. And it, it could be that either the artists are just highly influenced by that kind of artwork, or this is also my first contact with uh, any South American comics. It could be that that's also a common look in South America. Yeah, I have to shamefully admit my ignorance here and say that it's not always that I look into where people are from when I read their art. So I might have read stuff before or seen artwork before from this part of the world, but not that I can recall from the top of my mind. Yeah, certainly, in my case at least, certainly not enough to have a sense of a sort of um, a style or a sensibility that tends to come out of the area. And it's a huge area as well, like uh, geographically giant. But yeah, like the, it was the, the thing that made me sort of stop and look was the fact that it did have such a strong sort of French, Belgian, Italian kind of feel to it that, uh, you, you know, that having sort of thought, oh, this is definitely French or something. Mm-hmm. It, that, that was what made me yeah, a little surprised. But anyway, I was going to say, it's, it's got this sort of scratchy, lean clair sort of feel to it, yep. like clean lines, quite precise. But also, it doesn't have that kind of over-laboured feel as well. It feels like the, the line feels fast and, and expressive at the same time. It doesn't like have a huge amount of stretch and squash or... Um, or, or in, in a very like the forms are very rarely broken like you like you suggested you don't you don't often get kind of like speed lines or anything like that so yeah uh, agreed but then this is all sort of definitely kind of nitpicking in terms of the artwork because um, it just uh, yeah again it's it's stunning and I think we tend to be drawn to artwork being artists and it was definitely the art that made me kind of go whoop <laughs> when I saw this yeah 100 percent. my takeaway on missing the movement is in no critique of the art itself because the art is god tier it's probably one of the the most visually beautiful comics i've ever read honestly because (laughs) i wrote down big cred for making a comic around a huge piece of armor (laughs) because how much do you hate your life to draw such a dense detailed object page after page after page, where the shape has to be consistent enough for the reader to recognize it as the same armor over and over again. 
and not only doing it but succeeding in doing it. Yeah, I mean, I can only think of uh, Full Metal Alchemist as a sort of a yeah, you're uh, right. Another comic that's that's got that. You're in it. right. Yeah, Al- Alphonse from Full Metal Alchemist is another good example of just that. But again, the art style is so insanely different. Yeah. I, I this is just me guessing. I have no clue. But would you be more willing to believe that they use 3D objects in Full Metal Alchemist versus this comic? Ooh, possibly. I can't remember when it first came out. Mid double O's question mark like double O's. Yeah, I was definitely using 3D models when I was drawing around then, so very possibly. But then again, like the artist on Full Metal Alchemist is also god tier, just in another very style. Very true, so. very true. I I do not mean to discredit anyone, and not that there's anything wrong with using 3D objects. Just to stress out straight out the gate for any kids listening, like tracing is cheating, or like go back <laughs> to school. But uh, <laughs> it just made me wonder because, of course, Alphonse shape is so clean always while this mm. is much more organic, which I personally really love because it's something so so beautiful about a very hard object still being readable as not necessarily soft but not super rigid yeah absolutely this is a constant texture like you can feel how pitted and damaged the armor is especially as it becomes more damaged as the story goes Mm. on and that was one thing i wanted to mention about the um story actually so for for context if you haven't read the book it follows it follows this young girl being guarded by this piece of armor And the book is divided into what feels like four seasons, both visually and in terms of the text that introduces the chapters. But the girl seems to go from the age of about four or five to at least sort of mid to late teens, if not early 20s by the end of the book. Whereas the other characters didn't seem to age. Did you did you get that impression as well? Yes. Yeah, I did. And I think at least how I read it, because this is this is kind of the point of this story, right? You're left to do a lot of the legworks in terms of storytelling yourself, and that is not a critique. It's more like it challenges the reader to insert their own vision in a way. And yeah. I read it as her just meta, uh, what's the word? Me- Metamorphosis. Oh my god, I'm trying a fancy word. <laughs> She's going through a metamorphosis that just speeds up her growth because she isn't human right she what did you read her as i read her as the seasons or mother nature yeah there was uh, so there was definitely like some thematic stuff going on here as well it's worth mentioning it i felt it reminded me a little bit at times of princess mononoke in that Mm. it's very much sort of like the forces of war and industry and empire against the forces of sort of like nature and the wild the untamed and she seemed to sort of symbolize that her blood whenever it touched things had powers over nature or growth and there seemed to be some sort of force keeping initially i thought that maybe it came from the suit of armor but after a while it seemed that it came from somewhere else like a higher power or from nature itself that would throw up water or earth or plants to stop her from deviating from her path. So there's definitely something deeply inhuman or supernatural about her. It seemed to be that this emperor character is trying to control her or lure her or tame her, which is where that kind of Princess Mononoke theme seem to come from for me at least did you pick up on the same thing it's funny you say princess mononoke because my big feel for this entire story was uh, noska oh yeah and okay. I-, I think for me that has to do with noska feeling so inherently different from a lot of other ghibli movies it's uh 
it's very epic, right? It's very large and it contains so much. And as far as I remember, the movie only touches on a little bit of the manga that it's based on. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it feels much vaster than anything else, t- Tales of Earthsea notwithstanding. <laughs> mm-hmm. It feels very, very grand for being a Ghibli movie. And that's kind of the same feeling that this entire universe gives me. It's this lived-in world with an established system that you as the viewer slash reader slash whatever, you're kind of just expected to accept it straight out the gate, no questions asked. And I personally love that because you know me, I hate exposition it really drives me up the wall and Mm, i think that's why i'm so semi-aggressive about the little text that is here in general because it kind of reminds me of a lot of fantasy mangas are guilty of this where they're set in this big world and the first page you open is just fucking wall of text not even a comic it's literally just wall of text like in the year of blee blah blue in the kingdom of wee wah woo and then you you're expected <laughs> to remember this fat lore dump straight out the gate with no connections yeah. to it and i'm just like please dude find a way to braid this naturally into the story thank you yeah do not drop me in the middle of ten thousand different term pieces of terminology that <sighs> i need to remember in five seconds but i think that that's where comics have such a strong power and where this comic sort of really works in that respect is that what's hard to sort of assimilate and remember in words because you're coming across foreign terms or unusual names you just sort of naturally sit with in images it's like oh okay they're there they look like that this looks like this oh this world has this thing in it and you don't need to kind of attach labels to them and often that kind of storytelling especially bad in certain Final Fantasy games, that kind of storytelling hides a lack of substance or world building behind a huge slew of unique names that just come to mean a system of things that you're supposed to take for granted. And if you were to strip them away, you'd realise there was nothing really underneath that was all that unique. And this comic is sort of the opposite of that. I can only speak for myself, but I think it's so easy to read the motivation of every character here, right? Because you have the main character, the girl, with the, the next main character, the warrior, and then they meet this family that are very easy to understand their motivation because it's it's very it's the bare minimum, right? It's survival and it's also this nurturing side that they offer the girl, but the warrior cuts them off because the warrior is overprotective. And then down the line we we're also introduced to the Emperor, which is the certified villain. It's it's very easy to read all these different kind of characters. There's no confusion whatsoever. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I didn't need to know that it was the girl, the the farmer family, the emperor, the warrior. Those are actually the names for them in the script, as far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. But it, yeah, I didn't need to be introduced to those sort of ideas to pick them out of the artwork. Actually, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read for, for anyone who doesn't, has either read the book in a different format, if a different format exists, or for people who haven't read it at all. One of the panel descriptions in the script to artwork... Because you were talking about the motivations of the characters being easy to read, and one of the strengths of the scripts is that it skips being hyper-specific about the visuals and goes straight to the motivations of the characters Mm -hmm. and lets the artist pull those motivations through. So, for example, this panel, small, on the girl's face, amazed, moved, confused about what she's seeing. She had no idea there was a person under there, let alone one who looked like her. So as the artist, you're not really being told what to draw exactly, but you're being given every thought that the character has in that moment 
and the opportunity to express it. And when you get that opportunity as an artist and you also know how to capitalize on it, I think you, you know, that clarity of expression really comes through really nicely. Yeah, I agree. And what really touched me seeing parts of the comic script was just how much the script writer seems to trust a future artist. I have no idea how this collab went down, if the artists were hired in post-script, if they worked it out together. I have no insight into that. But if it is the case that this story was pitched by an editor that then got in touch with an artist, I think that's so so nice of the writer to just leave it this simplified but with just the exact right information yeah absolutely it shows a lot of trust i'm not really sure myself how the how the artist and writer was sort of brought together uh, but that that actually reminded me i kept on forgetting that there were two artists there's a uh, an inker and a colorist on this and usually when that's the case there's some sort of obvious disconnect even if they're they're both incredibly good at their job you can sort of feel that there's two different hands at work. Whereas in this, I was constantly surprised to remember that the colorist and the inker were two different people. I wonder if they've worked together a lot because it just felt so seamless. This is meant as the highest compliment for me when I say that if you told me that this entire thing from story to finished product was one person, I would have believed it. We have talked about several times now the disconnect between writer and artist. And this, yeah. I mean, it just goes back to me saying it reminds me of Nasuka because it, it gives me uh, Miyazaki vibes from the Nasuka manga, right? I think it's it's in the style as well. There's something sort of sort of sketchy and free but hyper-rendered about the Nausicaa style and also this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I, if someone had told me it was just one creator, I would have, I would have believed it. I don't know what that is. It, there, must be, there must be some trick, some secret, or maybe it's just a, a kind of trust and an experience that goes into three separate people working on something or four actually because there's a letterer who presumably just did the the small foreign bubbles Mm -hmm. creating something that feels so unique and together in a way that doesn't hint at a production line or anything like that yeah fully agreed the tricky thing i noticed right away when reading this is that there's no page numbers oh yes So i was like fuck i need to actually make little notes and do my best to try to guide you to the notes that i took of certain pages yeah i was gonna suggest sort of going for a rough percentage like about 10 percent through or something <laughs> like that so i was gonna trust my instinct to be able to describe the page to you <laughs> <laughs> Because one of the one of the very first is just it's just something I want to point. Out. The, the sad thing is that since we lack page numbers, kind of moot to to point this out because people can't easily look it up. But it's very early in the comic where the girl is on like I mean very very early like first I don't know five to ten pages where the girl it's a double spread page. So the girl is on the very left trying to touch a flower while the warrior is fighting a beast in the snow. And there's this reflective image top bottom where top of this page is the world and then bottom is the world reflected in this icy water, I assume. Yeah, I've got a bookmark on the same page. It's so breathtaking. It's where I first really, both times already, I had to stop and just take everything in where... I'm blown away by the level of detail, by the storytelling, by the contrasting. Everything is perfect. Mm, yeah, absolutely. It's it's sort of it's got this beautiful blue tone all the way, blue purple tone all the way through, except for these tiny splashes of budding nature, the flower that the girl's reaching for, and these 
little sprouts that are coming out of the water and, and almost kind of giving off magical sparkles. And because they are in yellow and orange, the contrast between their colour and the background colour immediately leaps out, as does the sort of the gleaming eye of the uh, monster that the warrior is fighting. And then at the same time, you've got these areas of much brighter sort of light grey colour and smoke being framed by darker trees in the foreground, Mm -hmm. which literally provide almost like panels that the girl and the warrior are set in. Just such a beautiful use of tone and colour to guide your eye and to show little details. And, you know, on top of that, the actual kind of expression of the artwork is, is beautiful as well. I've, I definitely stopped there too. Yeah, it's, it's fun that we both bookmarked that page because it, it speaks to to the level of wow factor on the spread. Yeah, for sure. The next... And it's, um... Oh, no, sorry, go on. Oh, well, I was going to say, I've, I sort of left a note to myself that it's funny, I don't normally what I look for in a comic are these kind of moments of storytelling where the paddle to panel transitions just sort of draw me in and wow me or something like that. And we've talked a lot about those kind of moments in previous podcasts. And I actually didn't find all that many of them here. But despite that fact, it was these huge splash paddles and splash pages that were still incredible storytelling moments in and of themselves that sort of made up for it for me. Yeah, I, I'm i a little bit inclined to agree, but I will say I, I had some moments where it actually made me go, wow. Of course, uh, I think the first one that makes you go, whoop, is when the warrior drops her helmet and you see that it's basically the girl in there, just this corrupted slash rotten slash overgrown format of her. That was the moment I thought sort of, I think in the script it's clear because you get a little glimpse into the script of that moment. It's clear that you're not really meant to know at that point whether it is the girl or not. And that was the moment that solidified for me like, oh, this is a cyclical story and that is the girl Mm -hmm. rather than the girl's sort of mother or something like that. But yeah, that was a beautiful moment. And also a perfect page turn as well. But maybe maybe it was just that those moments of lovely storytelling were more subtle and uh, they didn't sort of leap out to me like they do sometimes. I guess that's a good point. There isn't the... Mm, oh, this is so tricky to explain because saying that there isn't these huge character versus character moments in this is a, is a flat-out lie, right? Because I find myself incredibly drawn to the part where the girl is together with the emperor. Because there's such a mood change there where the Emperor is clearly... He's interacting with her for personal gain, right? That's very obvious for us, the reader. But yeah. for the girl, it makes her feel different, right? It makes her feel wanted. It makes her feel desired. She's drinking alcohol. She's. It feels weirdly sexual, but not in an uncomfortable way, but just two adults interacting with one another. And it was such a tone shift, but not a bad one, that I felt my investment go up did you feel like that or did you have a completely different response to this part of the book oh definitely i think it came at just the right point the point at which all those sort of mysteries had built on each other and had it just continued in the same format i think it might have lost me a little bit Mm -hmm. because you know the wandering through the fantasy elements the the battles the uh, the growth of the child that had all been kind of set up and and repeated enough that you you kind of have internalized it and all that was left was at that point were questions and the fact that then you had that section where you'd felt the frustration of the girl at not being allowed to do what she wanted and for the first time she was a little bit free 
and that the emperor sort of was almost wooing her. Mm -hmm. It reminded me a little bit of, have you ever seen Legend, that classic uh, fantasy movie by Ridley Scott with um, a very, very young Tom Cruise in? No, I have not. I uh, make it a habit of avoiding Tom Cruise movies. (laughs) Oh, right. (laughs) Yeah, I can understand why. It's... uh... It's an iconic movie. I probably shouldn't get into to, too much if, you, if you've not seen it too. But there's just this bit towards the end where Tim Curry, playing this incredible devil character, is like trying to lure this woman into his world and like woo her. And, and it, the whole that whole section reminded me a little bit of that kind of a, like the devil wooing you and showing you all of these earthly delights. And it, yeah, it definitely, I, I see what you mean about a slightly sexual nature. It felt like seduction, basically. Uh-huh. I guess it was one way of solidifying that the girl is now an adult, right? Yeah, it definitely, this felt like kind of, she'd been through her younger stage, she'd been through her adolescence, and this was the kind of post-adolescence phase. Mm-hmm. That's definitely the impression I got anyway. Regarding the whole emperor and stuff, it, I guess it's a two-parter question or maybe a, t- a three-parter question. Because what do you, did you get a feeling that the emperor wanted her for anything specific? Like, was it just to erase the, I'm just going to call them orcs because that's what they look like, but they obviously don't have a name in the comic. But there's there's a group of people who look remarkably like orcs. And it kind of feels like he is manipulating the warrior to take them out in this battlefield. But that also made me wonder if... Maybe it's both, but I kind of find the comic to be both a self versus self, but also man versus nature. What is your takeaway? Yeah, I definitely got both of those themes from it. In terms of raw plot, I'd say that's it. Yeah, the emperor lures the girl and they, they clearly the emperor was looking for them for a long time. And initially I thought it was to kill them or, or because they were opposed in some way. But when the emperor finally catches up with them, sort of midway through the comic and I'm like oh it's about to go off actually all that happens is the emperor comes down gives the girl a cloak like a beautiful cloak and then waves and leaves again and that her trajectory sort of takes her naturally to the palace after that point and that after that the emperor sort of distracts her draws her away from the warrior and then plants like a fake version of her, which is the the son of the farmer, and makes it look like he's killed by the orc army so that then the warrior will flip and he can harness the raw energy of the warrior, which sort of almost feels like, because the, the warrior is so elemental, it does feel like kind of playing a trick on nature almost. But then you've got that sort of self versus self thing that you mentioned where she's constantly trying to get away from the warrior and then the moment she does, something horrendous happens. And then the warrior is, is, uh, is killed by the emperor as a, as a result. And she's sort of effectively thrown out. He doesn't seem to care about her beyond that point. So it's like she made a tragic mistake by separating herself from this other element of herself. Yeah, and there is, um, there is a page I marked with just that, which is where I wish I could give you a page number. But it is when the emperor has taken her up to the planetarium on the top of his city, castle, whatever magic it's supposed to be. And she picks a, a flower from the planetarium and it immediately withers 
Did you read that as a result of her being away from the warrior, like separated from part of herself? Or is it because the city is so rotten and removed from nature that nothing that isn't immediately connected to the soil dies? Yeah, so I was wondering about this. There was, um, there's a moment right at the beginning where she's trying to reach the flower that you mentioned and the warrior's trying to stop her from doing so and eventually plucks it and gives it to her. Mm-hmm. Does she ever manage to touch it? Yeah, she the the warrior plucks the flower for her and gives it to her and she holds it and it's for what we can see it remains healthy until it's just not like there anymore. The next page is gone because we assume they traveled a little bit, right? I did wonder if there was a significance to her being, you know, that, that she could only handle the plant once it had been picked. There's definitely something about her that you know like her blood makes things grow. And she's being prevented from touching certain things for what feels like significant reasons. It's not unclear in the way that bothers me. It's unclear in the way where I just question if my guesstimate is correct or not. It, it's not any flaw of the story. It, it just makes me curious. It might be. A, it might be to underscore the artificiality of the this sort of imperial city. Like it's she's in this kind of glass dome full of what look like verdant flowers, but it might be to underscore the kind of lack of wilderness or the fragility of that environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, her being so kind of like tied to the wilderness. I've actually marked that double page spread where she picks the flower, but for a different reason. It's a lovely little moment where there's a panel divided down the middle. Yep, I... Exactly, I, I I was so certain you would pick that up. <laughs> yeah, she's leaning on the panel gutter, and it's just re- a really nice, uh, you know, suggestion of maybe a metal rod or something that would have been there. Makes that moment stretch out in time a little bit. It serves as a divide between the emperor and her, right? Because she's split, in, not yeah precisely in the middle, but she is split. So there's a tiny part of her with Emperor, but the rest is looking out at the battle with a forlorn gaze. Yeah, very, very effective framing there. Mm-hmm. There was another, another quite unusual moment that I've marked out sort of um, almost exactly halfway through. She's just seen, it's the very beginning of a part of the story. At the end of the previous part, she's just seen what looks to be like a royal lady passing by in a yeah, carriage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it opens up with her sort of wanting to follow the carriages, but the, the warrior prevents her. And she pushes back against the warrior, but she actually pushes back against an entire panel with the warrior set inside. So it's like she's pushing the architecture of the comic away mm-hmm. from herself, which is a really, really nice moment as well. And these are some of my favorite panels where the warrior is just this tiny little simplified shape because it makes it a little comical. Yeah, it's almost, the warrior is very kind of like dour and every time you see a facial expression, it's it's deeply upset or rage-filled or that, that kind of moment where it, it's almost chibi. Yeah, it, it, it really brings to mind what you said earlier about the similarities to Alphonse from Full Metal Alchemist. Yes. Yeah, yeah, the, the way that he's stylized with his little kind of like V-teeth sometimes. When he has the uvu face. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, it did, it did bring to mind that. But that, that, gives, that gives the warrior just a little, a little bit of humanity that she might otherwise lack. I have to say, I adore the design of the emperor. His shape language just has me go num, 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 num through the entire part of him being there. Ooh, just yeah. the way he's drawn from his outfit to the way he gesticulates with his hands and stuff is just, oh, it's so good. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Just looking at the bit where he sort of descends for the first time out of his craft and... I love the way that whenever he's around or saying something significant or addressing his followers, 
there's one symbol that you pick up on that is a common element in the foreign language that clearly means kind of empire or agreement or assent or royalty or something like that. It's like a little T, sort of a wiggly T shape. It kind of accompanied the introduction of the emperor in that moment. I actually hadn't noticed that. I have to admit, but now I see the flexing T. Yeah, it looks like a T, a T flexing its biceps. <laughs> <laughs> it's a buff T. And then if you uh, if you look later on, there's a bit where the emperor puts uh, has has achieved his plans. He puts a hat on. It's just before he discards the girl. Is it when he does a big hat flex? Yeah, he does a big hat flex, but he says that symbol, but the symbol has a hat. I did, oh my god, I need to look so I did not see it. Because I have to admit that when I first read this, I was so enamored by his big bits energy of flipping on the hat. <laughs> I thought yeah. it was so good. It's like, this douchebag goes around with a hat. Yeah, I see it now. That's so good. His, his flexing yeah. T has evolved. Yeah, it's like he's crowning himself oh almost. Oh my god. And the language is sort of, um, you know, it's like upgraded. Whatever that symbol is that meant sort of emperor or royal has just, has just got a hat too. <laughs> I thought that was a lovely little moment. What a Chad. <laughs> yeah, the T, the flexing T means Chad. <laughs> He's the emperor of the Chadorium. <laughs> it become, he becomes the Giga Chad. <laughs> He evolves. <laughs> oh my god. I I just realized uh, why I get big uh, Nazca vibes is, of course, because when the warrior gets obliterated, but right before that, the warrior gets into the battle, it really reminds me of how they're manipulating the giant in Nazca when they've unearthed the giant and they're oh, using it for yeah. warfare. That's really the big vibe I'm getting here. Yeah, absolutely. It's got the same sort of and again, the emperor sort of manipulated them into this place where he can use he can use that power. Actually, thinking about it, there's um, that theme's in Laputa as well, and it's in Mononoke trying to harness the power of the forest. That's that's clearly a very kind of a Ghibli thing to do, and maybe that's why it's sort of this story is as a whole reminded us of that. Yeah, and I mean, a war on the environment is uh, has sadly been topical for a while now, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It comes through in this. Did you get a sense that there was perhaps some sort of maybe like an ancient or a native civilization that came before that they might have been a part of? Because there's that that tree with the lock in that looks part mechanical, part organic. I didn't think about that at all until you asked the question now. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, right? That nature will prevail where humanity will come and go. Because in the great scheme of things, humanity is so insignificant. But nature will always be around. Yeah. But I, I, I didn't actively reflect on the fact that they might be, might have been an entire people or anything. Because, I mean, I, I really did read it as Mother Nature herself slash themselves just doing the, the cyclical journey to spread the seasons, question mark? Yeah, yeah. It definitely has that vibe, doesn't it? It only just occurred to me that the idea of sort of like a previous civilization because of the sort of technological side of the thing that they're they're doing their journey. I guess it's almost like a migration they're doing it to and from. Talking of sort of Mother Nature imagery, I absolutely loved seeing by the end of the comic, the warrior had aged to the point where she's really old. And there's this panel when they get back to the, the, the key in the tree just before it sort of um, blooms again and she's reborn. 
where you see her as an old woman. It's just so gnarly. I love it. <laughs> I found it. But why did you find it gnarly? Is it because she's old? I use the word gnarly in a way that nobody else does. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's like cool. Um, yeah. I just I just use it to mean cool. Ah, I see. This this is where I'm I'm not hip with the kids, so I don't know that gnarly is slang for wicked. I'm not hip or a kid, so it probably isn't. <laughs> It's probably been a good 20 years since people said gnarly for a positive, huh? Yeah, or if they ever did, and maybe I just misunderstood. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I do agree. It is incredibly beautiful. And it's kind of interesting, right? Because in contrast to this, because the, the next two pages where the full transformation kind of happens with all the gold across the pages or the panels. Yeah, it's a lovely moment. It is. And it draws to mind the the page we commented upon in The Magic Fish by, by Trungles, where when he finally broke the panels a little bit with the whooshing wind, we still went a little, ah, I mean, I'm, uh, you know, it's beautiful, but it's, it's not to its full extent. And this, to me, is the full extent of how you can use those kind of blank spaces to really draw attention. The contrast between the sort of glow and the, and the rest of it is, uh, is really stark, but it always draws you into the face, doesn't mm -hmm. it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's a lovely, but it's at the same time it's bound inside very, very regularized horizontal panels, and that works really nicely. I feel like there are moments when the action gets so intense or cerebral, and at those moments, rather than breaking out of panels and going into some sort of credibly esoteric or unusual layout, like a lot of people might do if they were sort of so inclined. This actually tends to regularize a lot more, uh, like the moment when she's rewinding time, which I thought was really successful, like such a hard thing to communicate. This sort of power that she's got that's becoming more and more intense, and then versions of the things that have just happened flip by the character behind all of this energy whooshing past her. And I was able to recognize those moments in the comic. But again, it's a very regular, regular layout. It's just a uh, exactly four panels divided into quarters horizontally in each page and that kind of regularity makes up for the fact that you're being asked to do a lot of heavy lifting by the uh, cognitive heavy lifting to figure out what's going on yeah but i i do firmly believe that this is one of those cases kind of touching on on what you're saying that if they weren't in these strict formats they could be incredibly misleading and confusing but containing them within the spaces they flow very cohesively and you're very you're able to to pick up exactly where you were in the story what where she's traveling through right yeah and it's funny actually this has um immediately after that sequence there's a moment where she drops a glass that made me think of you yeah yeah, because we were talking about that that bit in the magic fish where it didn't, it wasn't a shattery enough glass. This is definitely a shattery enough glass. It is such a beautiful panel that I could frame it and hang it on my wall, and it's literally mm. just a, mm. a, a glass of alcohol hitting the ground. Yeah, and it uses the sort of the direction of the liquid. It's like there's no speed lines, but you can tell the trajectory of the glass by this whip of liquid mm -hmm. that's coming out, which is a really really lovely moment. Since we're already on the pages of the time travel, though, this leads to one of my biggest questions for you. Do you find that moments like these in stories kind of renders a dramatic moment null? Or did it work for you in this one? I still can't decide that. My initial response to it was that it was sort of, I think because I was, it took a while, you know, it took some real absorption in the sequence to figure out what was going on. And by the time the, the, the sequence had finished, I'd sort of accepted it because I'd had to work hard to figure it out, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But on reflection, I was wondering whether it was a bit cheap or not, that she could just go back in time and fix her biggest mistake. 
But then that does key into this one thing underlying the theme, which is that there's a sort of power of creation and destruction duo going on between the, the young girl or the, the younger version of the girl and the, and the older version of the girl as the warrior. And the emperor only wants the destruction half and he completely ignores and literally discards as worthless the creation half of this, of this character, mm. if you're seeing them as one character. And it's that creative half of the character that saves everything, that's able to overcome this fate and rewind time and effectively sort of quote-unquote heal the storyline. I think that that made me think, oh yeah, it's not, it's not such a cheap just... Uh, Oh, and and then they succeeded because they could suddenly change time. <laughs> I agree, because I I personally didn't find it cheap in this. It also makes me wonder if the girl slash the warrior is just this catalyst for, for the larger power. Because the same kind of power that is illustrated as the elements that you pointed out earlier, like wind or earth blowing up or whatever, to prevent them from doing certain things during the story. She also seems to have to physically fight through that element to get back to her warrior self. I guess you could, maybe I'm like super pretentious and reading into it now, but I guess you could read it as battling yourself in a way, right? To reunite with your whole self. Oh yeah, I hadn't picked up on that element of it too. Yeah, I definitely would see it that way, especially because we picked up on this dual nature of the character and, and the character being divided was the moment that one half was was able to be killed mm -hmm. it's funny because it's got a very kind of like um there are moments of humor but overall it's got quite a kind of like a dour serious atmosphere but that's it's quite an upbeat story in that respect it's sort of like it's showing you a cycle that could feel doomy and then breaking it at a pivotal point that allowed the character to literally control their own fate. Yeah, it, it doesn't read as uh, as an easy out for me without being able to exactly put my finger on why, because time travel is one of my bigger pet peeves in stories, because I think usually it's kind of lacy. I don't know. Um, oh my god. Uh, insert spoiler alert for uh, latest season of Stranger Things. Uh, have you watched that? Oh, um, yes. Okay, so at the very end, when two significant characters dies, right? One of them is brought back by Eleven and the other just isn't. I was sitting there going, okay, super don't dig this because then suddenly death has no consequences. There's no finality by it. So death carries no threat. I'm not a super fan of that in stories, I have to say, but in this one, it worked for me. Yeah, I think it's probably a difference in focus a lot of stranger things asks you to feel peril on behalf of the characters because it's sort of you know it's pseudo horror or full-on horror occasionally did you not feel peril for these characters oh i did feel peril for these characters in step by bloody step but by the time it this is clearly not a story that's intended to have 90 seasons and be extremely popular on netflix or whatever it's uh... I feel like i feel like that's a dig at the mr netflix hair <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as much as I enjoy your 90 season uh, show on Netflix, they tend to cancel them at three anyway. So, anyway, enough digging at Netflix. It's, uh... No, we can never dig enough at Netflix. Honestly, <laughs> they, they'll never pick us up, Paul. You don't have to. You don't have to brown those hair. Oh yeah, yeah. Good point. Good point. What was I going to say? Yeah, this is because this is self-contained and because it's so cyclical. In, I mean, it literally is a cyclical story. We're going through four seasons and we're coming back to the, the initial moment of the comic. Even the same words in that in those little uh, preview panels are, are repeated at the end of the comic. 
the fact that we are bridging time in the middle of something that already kind of completes itself in time seems fine. It seems suitable, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Stranger Things, it doesn't really feel suitable. There's nothing about the plot or the story that leads you to think that suddenly death will be no barrier. When people are dead, they're very dead. And that's always been the case up until the point. Yeah, I, I guess that's true. Maybe I just wanted to rant about Stranger Things because that season was a shit show. <laughs> <laughs> And it felt like the only parallel that I could draw at the moment think of time travel that I've seen recently. In the, spirit, uh, in the spin-off series, The Art of Netflix. <laughs> oh my god. You know, it's funny you mention that though, because uh, as you know, when I first pitched this whole podcast idea to you, my initial idea was movies. And you were like, nope, I'm not comfortable enough to, to be a public hater of movies, but comics, however. And I was sitting over here like, oh yeah. I'm the complete opposite because I'm much more comfortable being a hater on the medium I'll never touch or probably work within. Uh, meanwhile, in the comic industry, I would love to maintain some sort of fucking face. And you're like, nah, fuck that. Yeah. You know, at least if we're going to go down, I'm going to go down talking about what I do for a living rather than... Uh... Yeah, I mean, I guess. But I'm, I'm just saying, if you ever feel like uh, The Art of Netflix is our spin-off series, <laughs> I'm down. Yeah, I mean, maybe... Maybe when we get comfortable enough, we can we can expand a little bit, or uh, or do a few guest shows, or or something like that on uh, on some non comics. Might be fun. Oh my god. Uh, uh, speaking of, uh, this is such a this is this is not the professional segue that I will be remembered for. But in kind of the realms <laughs> of Netflix and uh, the moving format, I did write a note though. I know a lot of people will probably ruffle their feathers at what I'm about to say because there's this ongoing thing that a lot of people treat comics as the the middle step to get picked up by stuff like Netflix to be adapted to the big screen. Kind of like a glorified storyboard, if you will. And while I usually too ruffle my feathers at this aspect because I think it's bullshit because I do think comics are perfect as is, I will say, reading this, I kept picturing it picked up by someone, which is sadly no longer possible, but someone like Satoshi Kon or something, and then made into Ooh. a fully animated feature. And I was like, oh, mamma mia, that would be very hard. Oh, have you ever seen a film called Belleville Rendezvous? Sometimes called The Triplets of Belleville? No, no, no. I've seen it. It's The Biker, right? Mm, yeah, that's the yes, one. Yes, I've seen it. Okay, right. Imagine that studio, that quality of animation, this line style. Mm. Oh yeah, oh, that would be so... just that kind of you know, that French visual yeah, sensibility, yeah, yeah. That quirky, along, along with slightly, almost a little uncomfortable at times, but just the right amount of uncomfortable. Yeah, hundred percent. I think it would work absolutely spectacularly. I mean, the, here's where the fact that we both came in through animation to comics probably rears its head. I'm often looking at something and simultaneously appreciating it for what it is, and also imagining what it would look like animated. That's uh, is something that's just constantly in my head, so I, t- I totally understand. Mm, yeah, but I, I felt like I really had to run with the, the precursor that it is very often abused in a pretty, in my opinion, hideous way. I think it's very easy to be tempted to think that comics by now just work as that middle ground because we see so many comics picked up right or so many that sounded very exaggerated but we see a lot of comics being picked up to the moving screen in one way or another be it like you know the million fucking marvel movie or uh, heart stopper or what have you 
And I think it's easy to fall into the trap thinking that that is the way to go. Because I do know, since I am in the industry, I do know that there are several people who keep getting connected by, and I'm going to use this term lightly, writers who just obviously want (laughs) to make movies, but then they're going to use you as a stepping stone into that. Yeah, I have quite literally turned down a comic that I knew was for that purpose Mm. uh, before. And, you know, I, I know, you know, I've spoken to writers who love comics deeply, for whom it's their chosen medium, but who are also, you know, financially partially dependent on at least having their scripts optioned by someone if not eventually made in fact best case scenario it never gets made and just gets optioned over and over again every couple of years because then you've got a constant income stream from it (laughs) but uh yeah it's a reality of the industry that comics don't pay particularly well but when you get a, a deal with a company like netflix suddenly it can add that extra part that turns you from someone barely making a living into someone comfortably well off slightly better than barely making a living to be fair that is valid and i am just a hater and I, I will be the first to admit that I am I am probably unreasonably crass towards that part of the industry because make your money however you want and I will not judge you for that. That's super fair. And I, I do mean that even, you know, regardless of what I just sat here like me, 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 me over. But I, I just think it kind of degrades comics in a way to a lot of people where people outside of the industry can think that comics are just their easier way to make their incredibly fucking mediocre script look very lucrative all of a sudden because they had a good artist turn it around yeah and there's plenty you know absolutely no denying there's plenty of that and it speaks to a a sort of an attitude you see sometimes where there's an uh, almost an unconscious ranking of the importance of each of the media where you know you'll be like comics is at rock bottom and films are at top you know mm-hmm. when you've had the film that's the true form of the medium you, you know you've you've done it now it's it's in the film it's it, it, it's filmed it's the way it should be kind of thing yeah. um, and everything else is a yes i fully fully agree with that but yes, as with all of these things, I think all of these things are simultaneously true. You don't have to think that the industry is just one way or another. It can contain all of these weird, uncomfortable, slightly different versions of, of the same thing within itself. Because reality be weird, you know? Yeah, and as per usual, you have a more... Oh my god, I'm completely blanking on the word. You have a more pacifistic way of nuancing my words when i go out all rage blazing and then you're like uh but um actually it's uh it's not that easy and i'm like yeah yeah you're right you're right i do live in a well actually (laughs) (laughs) i'm canceling your twitter (laughs) which by now i'm certain isn't worth much no jesus christ all going to doge in a handbasket right now I gotta be real, I haven't been on Twitter since the beginning of March. Wow, so, right. So, fr- yeah. from what I could gather from the sudden influx of followers I got on Tumblr, I assume Mr. Mr. Musk did some significant fuck-up again. Oh, just a, just a huge series of them. It's not, it's not worth getting into here. I saw someone referring to him as Elmo, which mm-hmm. uh, really cracked me up. Oh yeah, the last thing he did was replace the Twitter icon with the Dogecoin icon. Why? <laughs> uh, because he's invested heavily in Dogecoin. But is he, he wants 15? people to remember that it exists. I think so. I think he's 90, 15-year-olds, yeah, like, yeah. inside the skin of a strange 
man i don't know he is what actually him and zuckerberg is what actually makes me think that lizard people are real and that there is something to this whole flat earth plan <laughs> and they're secretly controlled by jinji ito <sighs> that's almost an insult to jinji ito because he writes more likable characters than zuckerberg and musk well, that's very true it's very true <laughs> We have gone on the most epic tangent. Um, <laughs> Something tells me some of this will be left on the cutting room table. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So one of the bit that I bookmarked is probably almost exactly three quarters of the way through. There's a really lovely page. It's a full panel of like a mountain with a bunch of insects where she's just been dragging this armoured hand of the warrior through the snow and she's dragged it to the top of a um, of a cliff, and she's being approached by these like gribbly dog-like things, and she distracts them by throwing some fruit and escapes by sliding down the mountain mm-hmm. on the hand. And I just loved the the way the inset panels draw your eye around the action and then into that slide down the hill, which is all on the main panel, and then you see her land at the bottom. It's uh, another lovely moment of. Um, of kind of unusual storytelling. Also that, and it's surprisingly lighthearted in a rather grim moment, right? Yeah, yeah, it kind of breaks some tension because the death of the warrior and, and her, like, dragging the hand through the through the wilderness as it snows is, yeah, very grim. This also made me think, do you... And this was something I just thought of now, seeing her carrying the glove around, because it seems almost unbelievable that such a thin figure is able to even carry this massive piece of metal. And do you feel like that is kind of the elements molding her into becoming strong enough to carry the entire metal? Oh, it could be, yeah. It did occur to me that when she first picked it up, I was like, wow, how does how much does that weigh? You know, there must be like several hundred kilograms at the very least if it's solid metal and there's no way someone could pick that up unless they're a strong man. Yeah, I didn't I didn't go on to think about it much after that, but I I agree them with there's sort of like a level of responsibility for herself and a level of effort that she starts putting in after the moment when the warrior dies that must be part of her coming into her own yeah that's at least how i read it that also brings to mind another question that i had did you at all find it weird that she she of course hasn't spoken a single word until i mean she i don't think she ever says anything she's always quiet but she immediately understands the other people talking to her what do you make of that? Oh, right. Um, I didn't pick up on it, but maybe I just assumed she was sort of, she got their intentions, but not necessarily. Oh, of course, but, but there's the whole sequence in the palace. Yeah, I don't know. She does seem to, she's at least responding. Yeah, she's chatting with someone at one point, or it looks like she's, she's sort of talking, or perhaps she's saying, no, I don't understand you. Is she ever talking? She never actually makes a speech bubble. Yeah. But there's this, so you know there's that that double page spread with the petals Mm -hmm. all laid out on the floor. The spread immediately after that is sort of like a party montage where she's like stuffing her face and dancing with the emperor. And there's one panel where it looks like she's talking with the guests in the party. Mm -hmm. But you could also interpret that as, haha, you're talking to me, but I don't understand you. And I'm just going to stick my hand up to say that I don't. Yeah, because if, I mean, it is obviously a deliberate choice to never having her actually have a speech bubble. And I, I just read that as her being quiet throughout maybe maybe she laughs and makes sounds but i never read her as having what this book portrays as speech like vocal speech yeah if i was adapting this i would absolutely not have her do anything other than sort of laugh or cry Mm -hmm. just make 
noise basically yeah yeah anything that anything that i'd consider like instinctual Mm -hmm. and not learned would be fine but like yeah it would be weird if she suddenly said something the script seems so intelligent or i would dare say it is so intelligent that there's no way that's not intentional yeah yeah for sure yeah all in all it's just an immensely beautiful book right it's it's so well executed there's nothing that stands out i mean obviously i i went on a tiny rant about the the writing but that is so subjective and i i am super up for bowing down and accepting that that's just part of the book and that some people will love it and some people might not love it as much but other than that there is nothing here that makes me go hurt because it is i think it's quite near perfect it's all the the only thing that stands out is all subjective and a matter of taste. Yeah, absolutely agreed. I really enjoyed the reading experience, and and talking with you has made me appreciate it even more. I think, especially when I said that there were no sort of, uh, or, or I didn't notice many moments of real kind of panel to panel storytelling flair. Totally take that back. We've <laughs> talked about so many. Definitely, definitely worth a read. This one. Yeah, I agree. It's it's definitely one of those stories that if you experience it very privately, I I think it's still wonderful. But this is one I would definitely urge people to to pick up in pairs and discuss with one another because just as you pointed out, your takeaway can be very similar. And yeah, you can highlight something that the other one missed and vice versa and just enrich the experience even more. Yeah, yeah, fully. I definitely appreciate it more than when we started this conversation and I already liked it. So uh, seconding that. Yeah. I I agree. What have we got lined up for next time? For next time, in two weeks from this aired episode, we are tackling On a Sunbeam by Tilly Walden. I've read this before and you haven't. Yeah, finally the roles are reversed. (laughs) I'm going to say nothing. Have you read any other Tilly Walden pieces? None, no, this was my first. Okay, so this is my third. Oh, interesting. Oh, well, that will be a good uh, perspective as well. Like, uh, you as sort of judging it against her other work and and me uh, me coming to it new. I do believe Spinning was her debut. So I I think this came out after Spinning. So I'll, I'll look a little bit into that to get a perspective of where this kind of situates in her discography or this, how do you pronounce it? Is it discography? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, like a collection of yeah, yeah. stuff, right? Oh I just can't believe I actually nailed the word. I've never said out loud before. <laughs> really? <laughs> It's one of those I read on Wikipedia over and over again, but I have never heard verbalized. <laughs> it, always, it could be really fun ways of saying it, like discography. That's that's exactly what I thought. I was like, there's no way it is that, and I'm not about to make myself look like a fucking idiot. <laughs> okay, well, looking forward to talk to you next time. Yeah, I'll talk to you again in uh, roughly two weeks. Bye. Bye. It just perform the entire intro. Oh, do, that. do you think I should like, uh, if we become internet famous and we blow up on Patreon or whatever the fucking payment is in the future, that one of the sub goals is gonna be Joss will do the entire fucking Pokemon song with altered lyrics to fit the podcast? <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> and I'll sing along. <laughs> you can be my backup choir. <laughs> yeah.